Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Beyond a Sentimental Gospel, The Slaughter of the Innocents. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, December 26, 2010, the first Sunday after Christmas, and in fact, the last Sunday of the calendar year. Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University once observed that sentimentality is one of the greatest enemies of understanding the gospel. Perhaps there's no time when we're more susceptible to this danger than at Christmas with the stories about the birth of Jesus. What parent hasn't gushed with pride watching his child play a shepherd in a bathrobe or an angel with a coat hanger halo? It's difficult to read words like they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and not melt into a puddle of sentimentality. But a very gruesome gospel this week disabuses us of all such hallmark readings of the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew yanks us back into the violent political realities during the time of King Herod. The story of the pagan magi worshiping Jesus ends abruptly when King Herod slaughters innocent children in order to strengthen his rule. This old story is reenacted many times and in many ways in our own day when political powers annihilate their opposition to protect their power. It's certainly not a story that you teach with a flannel graph in a children's Sunday school. With Christmas carols still echoing in our ears, the church liturgical year pivots sharply from joy and celebration to a most unlikely feast day, the slaughter of the innocents. The church honors the toddlers of Bethlehem as the first martyrs of the gospel. By the late 5th century, the slaughter of the innocents was the subject not only of church liturgy, art, and literature, but also mentioned in culture at large. Whereas the pagan magi of Persia worshipped the baby Jesus, Herod of Rome tried to kill him. He had, after all, murdered his own sons, we read in Josephus. We don't normally associate the birth of a baby with the demise of political power, but Matthew does, and his political parody is transparent. At least we can give credit where it's due. Herod sensed a threat to his power and took brutal action against it. Matthew contrasts two rival kings who rule not only over one people, the Jews, but over all the world. One king must give way. The subplot of King Herod almost overshadows the main plot of the adoration of the Magi. Matthew 2.2 says that the Magi came to worship Jesus, and that's what they did. Upon seeing Jesus and Mary, they bowed down and worship him, says the gospel, offering him gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Herod tells his confidence in Matthew 2 verse 8 that he too wants to worship Jesus, but that's a lie and perhaps a reminder for us today when political leaders flaunt their faith. Matthew says that when King Herod heard the news of another king, 
He responded in fear, paranoia, and eventually infanticide. Herod the Great, as he is called, uh, whose dates are 73 B.C. to 4 B.C., had been given the title King of the Jews in the year 40 B.C., and after consolidating his power, he ruled over Judea for 33 years. Infamous for his brutality, the last thing he wanted was a rival over his Judean domain. So suspicious and insecure was he that he called a secret meeting of religious leaders and extracted information about the exact time and place of the birth of the new king, Jesus. This knowledge would later prove lethal. After worshiping Jesus, the Magi set out to return to their country. But God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, who had demanded that they come back with precise information. They disobeyed Herod and returned home, says the gospel, by another route. When he learned that the Magi had tricked him, Herod erupted in furious rage and murdered all the male children two years old and younger who lived in Bethlehem in its vicinity. Meanwhile, Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus fled to pagan Egypt, where they found asylum. The political ironies in the flight to Egypt are remarkable. The infant Son of God fled as a displaced refugee to a foreign country, Egypt, Israel's sworn and symbolic enemy that had oppressed the Hebrews for 430 years. The place where Pharaoh had unleashed his own infanticide against the firstborn Israelite children became a refugee for Jesus. In the end, and just as with the Egyptian Pharaoh, it was King Herod the Great who died, about 4 B.C., And just as in that ancient story it was the baby Moses who survived, so too did the baby Jesus. King Jesus returned to settle in the town of Nazareth in the district of Galilee, although he was careful to avoid Herod's son, Archelaus, who took his place. There are, in fact, five Herods in the New Testament, and to a person they all persecuted Jesus in the early church. In addition to Herod the Great, there is his older son, Archelaus, born of his wife, Malthus, Matthew chapter 2, 22, who reigned only a few years and was deposed in the year 6 AD. Then there's Herod's younger son by Malthus, Herod the Tetrarch, Luke three nineteen who was famous for murdering John the Baptist on a dinner party dare because John denounced his affair with his brother's wife and for his encounter with Jesus at his trial, Luke 23.7. Fourth, there's Herod King Agrippa, Acts 12.1, the grandson of Herod the Great, who murdered James and tried to murder Peter, Acts 12. And fifth and finally, There's King Agrippa's son, also named Agrippa, who bantered with Paul amidst great pomp and exclaimed that Paul was trying to convert him. Acts 25. 
All five of these Herods do the opposite of the Magi. They work hard to make the subversive kingdom of Jesus subservient to the political power of the state. But all these Herods, whether ancient or modern, are right about one thing. If Jesus is Lord, then the Roman Caesar is decidedly not Lord. In her own reflections on this text, the Lutheran pastor Pam Fickenscher observes, You could make a good argument that we should save this story for another day, like Lent, maybe, or some late-night adults-only occasion. But our songs of peace and public displays of charity have not erased the headlines of child poverty, gun violence, and even genocide. Ours is a brutal world. Today the victims are statistically less likely to be Jewish and more likely to be from Darfur or Zimbabwe or Iraq, but the sounds of Rachel weeping for her children are not uncommon. If we could hear them, they would drown out our cheerful tinny Christmas carols every 20 seconds or so. The birth of the baby Jesus, then, is the antidote to all sentimentality and every form of cheap comfort. Rather, the events surrounding his birth remind us how the Savior of the world shared in our humanity and was made like us in every respect. Because he himself suffered our every pain and sorrow, beginning from an infanticide at his birth and lasting to his death as a criminal, we read in the epistle for this week, he is able to help those who suffer today. Hebrews chapter 2, 10 to 18. For books this week, we have a guest review by Ray Cowan. Ray Cowan is a particle physicist at Stanford University and the webmaster of Journey with Jesus. The title of the book, Everything You Know About Evangelicals is Wrong. The authors are Steve Wilkins and Don Thorson. Grand Rapids, Baker Books, 2010, 224 pages. A guest book review by Ray Cowan. Recently, a colleague, colleague at work asked me what the difference between evangelical and mainline Protestant churches. He himself is Catholic. Evangelicals emphasize the need to have traditional views about Jesus in the Bible, I told him confidently, while the more liberal forms of Christianity focus on social issues. My friend looked perplexed and then asked, social issues? You mean like going to dinners and parties? After clarifying I meant social justice issues and structural evils, I was left with a fresh reminder that, beyond a vague idea, I really didn't have a decent definition of evangelical. I thought I could give some examples of people who are evangelicals, Billy Graham or Rick Warren, for example, but the exact concept was hard to pin down. It turns out I'm not alone in this. The book by Steve Wilkins and Don Thorson, Everything You Know About Evangelicals is Wrong, 
is a concise yet nuanced presentation of all things evangelical. If I had read it before the little discussion with my colleague, I could have given him a better picture of evangelicalism and its relationship to other ways of being Christian. For example, even though I've been associated with evangelical churches all my life, I didn't know that the current evangelical emphasis on correct belief as the primary, if not only real essential, goes back only a hundred years or so, and has its roots in the modernist fundamentalist struggle. See, for example, chapter 7, Evangelicals Are Not All Calvinists. The book is not a history of evangelicalism, but it covers enough events in movements like German pietism, British Methodism, and the American Great Awakenings, and enough people like George Whitfield and John Wesley to give me new insight into where we came from and why. In fact, I learned that in the 19th century and earlier, before the modernist challenges to Christian orthodoxy, evangelicals were the main players in the struggles for equality and social justice. Anti-slavery movements, equal rights for women, education for blacks, and caring for the needy in your neighborhood were as much the norm as telling people about Jesus and the good news. I find it interesting that evangelicals of that day and age found their faith necessitated action consistent with it. The two form a consistent whole. I also appreciate these folks' insistence on the sanctification of sinners as of equal importance to conversion. The book covers many topics, many drawn from hot-button issues of today. All but the chapter all but the all the chapter titles but the first chapter and the last chapter start with evangelicals are not all and they end with the words mean, stupid, and dogmatic, waiting for the rapture, anti-evolutionists, inheritance, rich Americans, republicans, or racist, sexist, and homophobic. The account of the growth of evangelicalism in the third world or the two-thirds worlds, as it is often called, is fascinating and heartening, as is the discussion of the role Christians in politics of civil life. For example, in the Republicans' chapter, they note that those who seek first the kingdom of God must remain captive to God's aims, or their goals will be hijacked by those governing earthly kingdoms. Everything You Know About Evangelicals is Wrong is a thoughtful book, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to study it. And I think it would be a good thing if my evangelical friends knew more about the history of and the issues facing evangelicalism today. A good start would to be read this fine book. The title of the book, Everything You Know About Evangelicals is Wrong. The authors, Steve Wilkins and Don Thorson. A guest book review by Ray Cowan. For film this week, I review Inside Job from the year 2010. I wish I had kept track of all the key players in the financial meltdown who refused to be interviewed for this film and to own up to their greed, incompetence, conflicts of interest and failures. 
On the other hand, I also have to admit that there are a handful of players who did agree to an interview and rightly regretted it. Charles Ferguson, who made the film No End in Sight about Iraq, wrote, directed, and produced this documentary film about the 2008 financial meltdown, and all but a few people look very bad indeed. The corrupt financial firms, regulators, politicians, and even academic economists. There are a few heroes who maintained their integrity and pushed hard for reforms and regulations, but they were ignored, fired, or quit in frustration. Choose your metaphor, but the American financial system is a rigged game, an apple rotten to the core, a chicken coop guarded by the fox, or in the title of this film, an inside job. Ferguson's main message is that the meltdown was no accident at all, but the consequences of untrammeled greed fueled by impunity. For book-length treatments of the financial fiasco of 2008, see my book reviews at Journey with Jesus on the book The Big Short by Michael Lewis or the book by Roger Lowenstein, The End of Wall Street. The title of the, book, title of the movie, Inside Job. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins lived from 1844 to 1889. Gerard Manley Hopkins was an English poet educated at Oxford. The title of the two poems actually are The Leaden Echo and The Golden Echo. The Leaden Echo. How to keep? Is there any, any? Is there none such? Nowhere known some? Bow or brooch or braid or brace? Lace, latch or catch or key to keep back beauty? Keep it. Beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away. Oh, is there no frowning of these wrinkles? Ranked wrinkles deep down? No waving off of these most mournful messengers, still messengers, sad and stealing messengers of gray? No, there's none. There's none. Oh, no, there's none. Nor can you long be what you now are called fair. Do what you may do, what do what you may and wisdom is early to despair. Be beginning, since no, nothing can be done to keep at bay age and age's evils, hoar hair, ruck and wrinkle, drooping, dying, death's worse, winding sheets, tombs and worms and tumbling to decay. So be beginning, be beginning to despair, Oh, there's none. No, 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 there's none. Be beginning to despair, to despair. Despair, 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 despair. And the golden echo. Spare. 
There is one. Yes, I have one. Hush there. Only not within seeing of the sun. Not within the singeing of the strong sun. Tall suns tinging. Or treacherous the tainting of the earth's air. Somewhere elsewhere there is, ah well, where one, one. Yes, I can tell such a key. I do know such a place where whatever's prized and passes of us, everything that's fresh and fast flying of us, seems to, seems to us sweet of us and swiftly away with, done away with, undone, undone, done with, soon done with, and yet dearly and dangerously sweet of us, the wimpled water dimpled, not by morning matched face, the flower of beauty, fleece of beauty, too too apt to ah to fleet, never fleets more, fastened with the tenderest truth to its own best being in its loveliness of youth. It is an everlastingness of, oh, it is an all youth. Come then, your ways and airs and looks, locks, maiden gear, gallantry, and gaiety and grace, winning ways, airs innocent, maiden manners, sweet looks, loose locks, long locks, love locks, gay gear, going gallant, girl grace. Resign them, sign them, seal them, Send them, motion them with breath, and with sighs soaring, soaring sighs deliver them. Beauty in the ghost, deliver it. Early now, long before death, give beauty back. Beauty, 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 back to God. Beauty's self and beauty's giver. See, not a hair is, not an eyelash, not the least lash lost. Every hair is hair of the head numbered. Nay, what we had light-handed left in surly, the mere mold will have waked and have waxed and have walked with the wind, what while we slept. This side, that side, hurling a heavy-headed hundredfold, what while we, while we slumbered. Oh, then, weary then, why when the thing we freely forfeit is kept with a fonder care? Fonder a care than we could have kept it, kept far with fonder a care, and we, we should have lost it. Finer, fonder a care kept. Where kept? Do but tell us where kept. Where? Yonder. What high is that? We follow. Now we follow. Yonder. Yes. Yonder. 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 Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889. The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, December 26, 2010, 
Happy New Year from Journey with Jesus. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.